Thanks, Chase. Everyone, we're going to continue worshiping by reading God's word. Um, we'll be reading John chapter 5, verses 16 through 30. Um, if you don't have a Bible, if you need a Bible, if you, need some, if you know someone who needs a Bible, you can borrow the one in the pew in front of you, and also you can follow along with our reading there. In the pew Bible, if you are not familiar with it, at the beginning of the book, there's a table of contents. You can look to the place that says New Testament, and the fourth book there should be the book of John. And again, we'll be reading chapter 5, so you'll go to that, John, and then flip a few pages forward. Um, we'll be reading, again, verses 16 through 30. Um, we believe the Word of God is living and active, and this is where all the source, all the questions you have comes out of this book. So if you have a question afterwards, you can ask based off of that. But we'll get reading into that now. So read along with me, John chapter 5, starting from verse 16. Um, oh, I was about to ask one more thing. This is following the story of the healing at the pool of Bethesda. So as we're looking at this, we've been going through the book of John, somebody who had been paralyzed for 38 years has just been healed, and this is the response to that. So again, John chapter 5 from verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so, the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will also, hear his, will also hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. It's the word of the Lord written for his people. Thanks, Femi. Good morning, everyone. That was great. Nice energy. Uh, before I, I dive in, um, I, need to, I need to do an announcement quickly. This is like the pastor announcement. It's the super important one, right? Um, so uh, a, a couple Sundays ago, first hour, this hour, uh, in our nursery, which is like two rooms, there were 42 children which is great. Good job, young couples. Um, 
We, I, you know, we try, we try to be a very like, hey, listen, get married, have families, creation mandate as much as salvation mandate, right? So that's great. Here's the problem. There's not room for 42 children in those rooms. Um, the fire department didn't come, but um, we, we just don't have enough room. So uh, this morning, we're starting a $3 million building campaign to expand the nursery, to prepare for the children we have and the children who are coming, right? You don't seem that excited. Okay. <laughs> what we're actually doing instead, because we, uh, you actually can use a church more than one hour a week, is we're changing our service times, which hopefully is less bad than a building campaign. Right? So what we're going to do is we're going to change our service times from 9 and 11 to 8.30 and 10.30. Um, the, the reason we're going to do that is because I've asked you before to come at a different hour, and nobody wants to do that, which is totally fine. I'm not upset about that. Here's what we have to do now. Now what we have to do is we need to start incrementally changing the time until people just naturally sort themselves <laughs> so that we can utilize the building with good stewardship. Does that make sense? This is not passive-aggressive. It's just leadership-wise what has to be done so we can steward the building— and right for the people we want to reach and try to make your Sabbath as fun as possible. Okay, I want, I want both. I want both, but that's what we have to do. So um, please be mindful of like what this costs volunteers because a lot of volunteers are going to have to move if they want to serve. And I just, I just want to say I really appreciate you guys. Everybody who's like coming earlier, worship teams who are coming even earlier, um, greeter teams, whatever, who are changing your schedules for the day to make this work. Thank you so much for being willing to do that, to serve people, to serve God. Um, I also want to encourage you to consider volunteering during second service because our hope is to spread out these kids so that we can minister to these kids that God has given us. Because as much as God wants us to reach new people and make disciples of Jesus, he wants us to make disciples of our kids and each other's children. That's why we're here together as a church. So we want to really steward these children well and want to make sure that we can start with them having a little more space in the nursery. Does that make sense? All right, so um, be ready uh, if you come at nine. The good news is you'll still get some of the service, right? Um, and you can just stay for worship the next service. So there's like three services. Okay, just kidding. <laughs> I didn't know some people who would do that. They would come like for the sermon, and then they would stay, and then they would go to worship, the singing part, singing part of worship, and then they would leave, which seems weird to me, but that's what they did. And I'm not their judge. Okay, so let's see if we can move on here. Okay. One of the widestly believed views about God in America— and in many places in the West, so to speak, um, among people who believe in God, is that God is an entirely benevolent, caring being who doesn't want us to suffer, wants our lives to be good, wants to take care of us, and um, has great hopes for us, right? And you might call this the therapeutic view of God, right? God wants us to be happy and nice, and he'll take care of us. Now, on one level, you could say, that's, that's a really nice view to have about God right? And why shouldn't we have that view about God? Isn't God loving and nice and so on? And um, here's my issue with it. Not that God isn't good, but if you think about a train that has different stops on different beliefs in God, that stop is right before the not believing in God stop. If you believe that about God, the next stop on the train of belief is not believing in God. And here's why. Because there's no way that's the God of this world. You can't believe that. Your empirical experience in the world as a human being will not allow you to believe that view for a long term. Because you'll be like, you'll be, you'll be even more to the, well then what the heck is he doing? Right? If you look across the world right now, most of South America, the entire Arab bloc, India, China, most of Russia, 
uh, most of Sub-Saharan Africa, most of North Africa, and you ask people, do you think that if there's a God, that God is just like mostly benevolent and nothing else, right? They would be like, that sounds really dumb. They would think you're nuts. If you go through most of the history of the world, people's intuitions about God by empirically experiencing the world is that God was a destroyer. God was maybe capriciously angry. God like building stuff so he could knock it down. Something like that. And what you probably should give the gods or the god or whatever is like maybe human sacrifices, maybe agricultural sacrifices, maybe animal sacrifices, maybe something that would make this god who clearly can't be happy, happy. Because, because the, the, the intuition of looking at the world that exists is not that if there is a God and there is one God who has any kind of control or power, that m the only thing he's interested in is all of our lives going super well. Is your life going super well? Is everybody you know's life going super well? You see, if you believe that about God, it's one stop from not believing in God. It's not helping you. And if you've held on to that view about God for a long time, congratulations. You are currently winning the, the good life, fun life, easy life lottery, or you're utterly mentally oblivious to the feelings of others or the things that are going around, going happening in the world around you, okay? And the minute you wake up, that view of God will be utterly insufficient to your capacity to actually believe that there is a God, especially one who cares in this world. The Jewish people who are around the pool of Bethesda in the first century, in this moment where Jesus does his first miracle in Jerusalem, they believed—sorry, i got to backtrack for a second. There's really only three options relative to our empirical experience of the world. One, there is no God. Now that becomes creationally difficult because what, what big banged in the big bang? How did—like—there's a lot of information built—like, there's some, there's some issues with it, but morally speaking, there's no God, right? There is a malevolent God, or multiple gods, where some are malevolent and some are good, right? So polytheism makes sense. Or three, there is a God of judgment. That is, that for one reason or another, the God who is good allows things that are bad to happen for some reason, or some set of reasons, and ultimately, because he's good, he will sit in judgment upon those things. So, in the history of the world, the cataclysmic change religiously was from either not belief in God or a belief in a bunch of gods that like some were destroyers and some were trying to do good and maybe you could do whatever, to a belief that there was one God, there was a God, there was one God, that God was good, but then what? Right? But that God was a God of justice and justice delayed. For what reason? Right? And so, so the Jewish people living in that cataclysmic change that happened somewhere around Israel, Egypt, and the coming of Moses with the giving of the law and the first covenant and God speaking and showing himself is that God is a good God, kind, full of steadfast love, loving righteousness, blessing anyone who would do well, right, and believe, and punishing those who do evil especially unto injustice and violence, right? And so the Jewish people understood that God was a God of judgment. It was the only way in the empirical world that we believe in to believe in a God that is good. Now, 
One of the reasons they were so emotionally connected to this God of judgment was because they understood their own identity profoundly in connection to God's great judgment of them. That in his covenant, he had done a lot of beautiful things, and there were smaller judgments, but there was one cataclysmic judgment. There was one moment where God said, I've had enough of you worshiping other gods and idols and giving yourselves over to injustice, immorality, and violence. And I'm going I'm to chasten you and to destroy you mixed together at the same time with this thing called the exile. And, and God allows these people to come in and completely destroy the people of Israel. It actually happens four times. The northern kingdom gets destroyed by the Assyrians. And then there's three Babylonian-like takeovers unto final destruction because God is still trying to give them a chance to turn to him for life so as to escape judgment, right? And then there's this final terrible judgment where all of the people of Israel, their homes, their cities, all destroyed. They're all taken into a country that's not their own, and they are lost. They're condemned. They're judged. And, it, and there's a psalm that says, as we sat by the rivers, by the bank of the waters of Babylon, and we cried because we'd lost everything. And those songs that they wrote in that time, those thoughts that they thought, that realization that the God who is good is God, of is God who is morally serious. And if we don't have faith, if we do whatever we want, he will judge us. And as they read through the prophets, and as they listened to the prophets from those times, the prophets said, God was trying to cause you to believe in him and to respond to him in that faith through action. And one of the things that he did in that was he gave you a sign. And that sign was this particular weekly action called the Sabbath where everybody else could work all week long and make everybody else work all week long. They could give themselves to slavery and to workaholism. They could act like their work and what they could get and what they could hold and their security was their God. And you are going to be different. You are not going to behave as though everything you can get is both your pleasure and your security. You're going to behave as though I'm your security. And the way you're going to show this in the most concrete possible sense is one day a week, you're going to stop the word Sabbath means to cease. You're going to rest. You're going to worship. And you're going to let the world go on without you. And you're going to have to trust that I can give you in six days what you need in seven. And there were a number of, a number of ways in which this played out in years and years of years and so on, but it was this weekly thing. And so when God judged them in Ezekiel, he said, one of the ways you desecrated me, and therefore deserve judgment, was you desecrated the Sabbath because you didn't keep the Sabbath. You just kept working. You just kept doing stuff. You acted like I wasn't there, like I wasn't doing anything. You didn't stop even for one day to worship me. You just kept working, kept doing, kept acting. And the more you acted, the more you thought you had to do it, the more you're like, well, I can't keep these moral rules and I can't be conscious of God. I have to put all my consciousness on what I'm doing, and I can't do it. He says, I got to do what I think I need to do, even if that includes immorality, injustice, and violence. And so increasingly, as you walked away from the Sabbath, you walked away from me. You walked away from faith. You walked away from life. You walked away from justice, and you walked into these things and further and deeper into judgment. So the Sabbath became this marker and sign of unbelief and sin unto judgment. Because the one God who is over all things is good. And you see, that's the context that this event, Jesus' first miracle in Jerusalem, evokes. There is a people who don't want to be judged again. <laughs> they do not want to deserve to be judged again. 
And this focal point in the word of their prophets, in this new era that they're living before God, is we will never, ever, 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 ever forget the Sabbath again. And because we're never going to forget the Sabbath again, we are going to make all kinds of rules so that we don't even get close to stepping on the Sabbath ever again. So we're going to be, we're going to say stuff like, you can't do this. You can't walk more than like 600 yards. You can't turn on lights or whatever. You can't like, you got to cook everything the day before. You got to, because we don't, I mean, who knows what work is, right? I mean, anything could be work. And like, so we're going to have rules like, you know, when you can't thread a needle anymore, it's too dark. And so now it's the Sabbath. That's the end of the day on Friday. And then like, and some of these were like, you can't carry anything, right? Because carrying stuff is work. And so this guy gets healed after 38 years of being an invalid, and he's carrying his mats, like these, these blankets he laid on, right? And they're like, and they're, here's this contradiction, okay? Who who is alive is more dead than a man in a poor country that no one is taking care of that's been paralyzed and laying in the same place for 38 years, right? How many people are in this room in 38 years is almost twice your current lifespan, right? Like a lot of you, right? It's like more than twice as long as you've been alive, that guy laid on those same stones. Nothing happening for him. The, uh, um, he, dead among the living, right? There's this painting of this where Jesus like comes up and he like lifts up this blanket to find this guy because he's not even trying anymore. He's the most lame. And so Devin didn't talk about this last week, but part of the uh, number of commentators say this. When the man says, Jesus says, do you, do you want to be well? And he's like, listen, when the pool gets stirred, I have no one to help me. And so I can't get in the water. Somebody always goes down before me. And you're like, what the heck does that mean? You see, there was a, there was a Jewish tradition. And it may be that this was actually real, okay? That every once in a while, especially on the holy days, the angel of the Lord would come and would stir the waters. You could see the water move. You couldn't see the angel, but you could see the water move. Something would happen in the water. And when that happened, it was a sign of God that God was still present with his people somehow. God was like giving this sort of like miraculous sign in this intertestamental period, right? Where like the people of God didn't know what was happening. And so th this water would change somehow. People would know. And whoever got in first would be miraculously healed. Well, who is the most or the least likely person to be able to get into the water? Right? Literally the person who needs to get in the water the most. The guy who's been paralyzed for 38 years. And so by the time Jesus gets to him, he's like, do you even want to get, do you want to get well? And the guy's like, I, what do you, like, if, see how that feels like an unfair question? It's like, I don't even know what you mean. Right? I think that's really important because I think for a lot of us, the idea of like believing and trusting in God, turning our life around in the way we know we really want to, dealing with stuff that's happened in our past, like learning to trust God in such a way as to like be who we were called to be. Like deal, like all this stuff in front of us. It's kind of like for a lot of us, see for some of you young people, you're just like, you're just kind of making your life and you're kind of like, you're dealing with these things and you're like, you know, what am I going to do next? It's all, it's like all exploration and whatever, right? I mean, I, I know that's not true for those of you who came of age in the pandemic and have trouble talking to people, but for the most part, that's what youth is supposed to be like, right? When we treat people well. But you see, you get a little older and you, you pass like the cusp of disappointment and there's all these things that, like, you thought you would be able to do, you thought you would get right, you thought that you would make, and you realize you're, it's not happening. And you realize that you're not on pace anymore. Like, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. And you're like, I don't know what to do with that. 
Like the stuff that when I was 20, I would have said, if this is, is this what happens in your life, you're a failure. It looks like that's what's happening in my life. And I don't know what to do. And I don't know how to change this. And I don't know where to go from here. And I, and I haven't been successful. See, you, see if, if you have, haven't tried that long at something, you know, you can, you can convince yourself that like you're going to be successful. You're like, yeah, I'm going to change this thing. I'm going to do this new diet. I'm going to blah, 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 right? And you're like, I'm going you know, to get rid of these sucky friends. And, like, and then I'm going to like rule the world. And you're like, okay, great, Tiger, go do it. You're, then you get to be like 40, you know, or 50 or 60 or 70. And you're like, this is not going to happen. Right? The more realistic you, we get about our lives and what we just aren't able, we just don't seem to be able to do, the, the more it just feels like it's just not going to happen. And especially, too, if in faith you, like, called out for miracles. Like, you're like, God, I need help. I know I need help. Please help me. And then it doesn't seem like God helps you, right? And so you're like, okay, so God could have helped me, and he just didn't. And then, like, here I am with this. Like, I couldn't get in the pool, and I'm still paralyzed. I don't know how I'm supposed to work, you know? And so— these people are facing this paradox between this man shows up, this Jesus man shows up, and he gives this guy life, basically. And then he tells him to do something that's going to get them judged. And you see, in some way, one of the things that Jesus is precipitating is one of the most important conflicts that can happen for any human person. The conflicts between your, your hope fears and your security fears. You see, there's some things— that you're, you're too afraid to let go of because the thing gives you some security. And then there's other things that you're afraid of, but they're, they're fears of hope. Like, I'm afraid to do it, but, but, but I have to go through that fear to get the good thing, right? And you see, on one level, everybody fears life, like real divine life. Like, what would it look like to, like, step out into that insanity and to, like, to lose your life, life to gain a life, and to, like, Find out what it means to count everything as lost. And what does it mean if like everything that I own, like it's almost like it doesn't belong to me. And I'm, I'm walking through the world so as to find and see the will and kingdom of God and to see what that adventure looks like. And that's terrifying, but it's kind of hopeful terrifying. And you're like, maybe I should do that. And then there's all the fears of security. It's like, yeah, but then I wouldn't, maybe I wouldn't have my car. Or maybe I, I wouldn't, I'd never go on the vacations I want to go on. Or maybe, and then what if my faith turns out to not even be real or something? And then I've lost all the stuff I could have had because I bet it all on the thing that didn't turn out, right? There's a lot of things like that. Like getting married is like that. Having children is like that. Becoming a Christian is like that. Um, dealing with a, a troubled marriage is like that, right? Because like you might have a sucky marriage, but you might not be divorced, right? And you like, you have a way that you're working this out by not facing some things that create explosive problems. And so like, you've got the like security fear, like I don't want to I don't want to press this. But then there's like the, well, what if you did? And is there any kind of way in which you could find something better? There's the hope fear against the security fear, right? The people of Israel were ruled over by the Romans, right? They were a subjugated people. They had not found their destiny. They were waiting for a Messiah. All of the real destiny they had been promised wasn't there. They were defeated and broken people. And yet they were holding on to this thing so tightly about like, but we can't be judged. And it's like, dude, you also can't receive life. Do you realize where you've put yourself? And Jesus is coming in and he, because, because here's the thing, religious people can be some of the worst people about this in terms of the fears of security. Legalism is a fear of security, 
right? It's that it's I don't want to get crossways with God, so I'm going to come up with all these rules so I don't offend God. That's what, I mean, how many legalists do things because they're like, if I fulfill all these rules, I make God maximally happy. Like, I have 170 rules of the things that I do because every single one of them, I know God just like loves that thing. And so I just do it, and I do that, and I do this, and I do that. And like, I just, God's just like, oh, this is so great. It's, it's not, it's like, they're all designed to not make God angry. Right? I'm going to button up my shirt high enough. I'm not going to show guys my butt. I'm going to like, I'm going to like do this thing. I'm not going to do that thing. I'm going to be at church every week. I'm going to do blah. And like, if I do all that stuff, then God will be upset. Here's the problem. If you step out towards God in faith, you're going to suck at it. Okay? You're, you're going to be really bad at it. You're going to get in situations where you're going to get angry or you're going to get scared and do something protective that's unhelpful. And like, you're going you're to fall on your face. It's going to be idiotic. And you're going to think that God is upset at you. And so better to not get on the court, right? Like, if, like when I was a kid, I, was, I wanted to play basketball. I was short. I didn't hit puberty until I was like in my junior year in high school, okay? So I was like the backup of the backup of the backup point guard. But Girls like guys who succeed at sports, right? And that was very evident. And so I was like, I want to get in there, coach, right? And so like, I would get in there for like three minutes. Like this is early on in the basketball career. And like, I'd be the point guard, but I wasn't very good at dribbling, but I was short, right? So I'd like get the ball stolen from me at like midcourt. And the guy would like dribble down and like hit a layup. And I'd be like, oh. and then I'd try to shoot. And some huge guy who had hit puberty would just like bat the ball into the stands. And like, after a while, I was like, you know what? I might do better with the girls if I just don't play. Because this is, I mean, I think this is worse than just sitting on the bench. And I think people think that way about God. Is that God is the coach, and you go in, and you, you lose the ball, and you get blocked, and you travel, and you're like, ah. And the coach is like, like you look at God, and you feel like God, this is the way God is. Like, you look at God, and if you look at God, this is what you'd be doing. And I realized when I, and that's what I think about God, and I realized when I coached, that's what I, I mean, I had to make sure I didn't do that. I had to stay there like this. Because <laughs> you can't teach a bunch of girl volleyball players fail trying if every time they try and they stink, you go, <sighs> right? You have to be like, yeah. And see, when we move towards our fears of security, we don't want to make God bad. We don't want to, we don't want to come into judgment. Then we don't actually face our fears of hope and do the scary thing of doing the thing that actually could bring life. Because life happens when the activity of God is combined with faith. This is why Jesus justifies the sinner and says, if you trust in me, you are approved. You are in my love. You are you are free to act. And I, and I know you're going to suck at it, but you're free. To, like, when you look at me, I'm going to be like, not. Because I, you're, listen, you try to behave like Jesus, the Christ in the world, and you, listen, it's not going to go well. Because you're going to be trying dangerous, strange things with people that you don't totally understand. And you'll be like stepping out in these things and it'll be, you'll be uncomfortable and stressed and anxious and hurting and wondering. And it's going to be crazy. And it's like a sport you've never even played. It's like, hey, let, do you want to play kabaddi? Do you know the sport kabaddi? Yeah, we're going to play right now. Like, how do you feel? You know, it's like, I don't know. It's, it's, what's it about? it's from India. You've never heard of it, right? It's like, it's really fun. It's a sport you've never played. Holiness is a sport most of us have never played, and legalism is a great way to sit on the bench. 
Okay, I need to keep moving. Now, how, how, do I, how do I know this is the issue? And it's because the passage makes it clear, right? In the passage, Jesus says, okay, I'm going to answer your objection about the Sabbath. Don't you see, when I say that my father is working, I'm contradicting your view of the rest and Sabbath. Because the dynamic with God is six days of work, one day of rest. And God is working. Six days, one of rest. And my father is working, and he's working to bring life. That is what my father is working on. And the thing about that is, is that therefore I, he's showing me stuff that he's working on, and then I'm acting. So think about this. There were a lot of people who were sick at the pool that day, right? Like that was a special place where all these people who needed healing went. And Jesus found this one person. Why that guy? Right? And what Jesus is saying, he's saying, that's the guy my father showed me. So that's the guy I healed. Because there was a purpose. Because people would have thought he was under judgment, that guy. When his 38 years of living death was being turned down into life by the gift of God, by the one who is the Sabbath, the book of Hebrews says, Jesus the Christ. And so he comes in and it says, he says, look, I'm going to show you even greater things than these. Right? That, that is, I healed a guy who had been an invalid for 38 years. And he's like, here, you're actually going to see better than this. Just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so the son gives life to those who he, he's pleased to give it. Now, this is foreshadowing because, remember, John's gospel is the only gospel that includes the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And then they all include the raising of Jesus for the dead. So the thing that's really going to amaze them is God's going to show them even more. The thing that God is showing Jesus ultimately is that he's going to go to the cross and that he's going to rise from the dead. And even more amazing things about the giving of life are going to be shown. He's like, you're going to see this. He's like, but here's the thing. The very one for whom he gives life, he says, moreover, the Father judges no one. You see, the Jews are like, look, if we don't keep the Sabbath, the Father's going to judge us. He's like, listen, the Father isn't even the one who's judging anymore. Like, the Father has authority to judge. The Father has judged. But here, now that the Son is present, the Son, he's about to say in a minute here that this, this person who's the Son of God is also the Son of Man. The Son of Man is from Daniel 7. He is the, the God-man person whom God puts his authority on so that he can judge the nations. And so when, when God, the Father, says, Jesus the Christ is the Son of Man, all of God's judging actions are entrusted in the Son. So if the Son, who is the Son of Man, that is the judge of all things, tells a guy to carry his mat, is God going to judge you if you support him carrying his mat when he's breaking your Sabbath rules? And the answer is no. The judge is there. Jesus is the judge. And the judge has said, you get life. So don't gainsay the life-giving work of God, saying, well, we don't want God's judgment, when literally God the judge is the one giving the life. If you want to get judged, the best thing to do is instead of cling to your, like, is to say, the thing the judge is doing is wrong. Be in cosmic contempt of court. Tell the judge the judge doesn't know what he's doing. Right? So he's like, here's what you don't understand, guys. I am the Son of God. As the Son of God and the Messiah, I am this one, the Son of Man, to whom God will entrust judgment. If you follow me, you don't have to worry about judgment. If what you are really trying to accomplish, friends, is to not be judged by God, he's like, then believe in me. Believe in Jesus, because Jesus is the one in whom has been entrusted all the giving of life and all the acts of judgment. And so to believe in and to be with Jesus— is simultaneously, at the same moment, 
to move from death to life and from condemnation to affirmation. Which is why in this passage, if you read it carefully, death and destruction and condemnation are used synonymously. Because if Jesus is the life giver and the judge, they are the same because they're in the same person who's doing the same thing. Salvation is a vindication and life, eternal life. And if the judge judges you, then it is simultaneously condemnation and death. Both reside in the one who is the son of God, who is the giver of life, and the son of man, who is the judge of all. Does that make sense? Now, okay, let's start the sermon. Okay, at the center— What Jesus is trying to say then are some very encouraging things. One is, at the center of God's self-revelation is love and pleasure. At the center of God's self-revelation is love and pleasure. I said before that if you try to look at the world empirically, it's very easy to think that somehow at the center of God must be something like either death, destruction, anger, judgment, something like that. But it turns out that those are just the lower clouds, not the upper stars. When Jesus reveals the character of the Father— and his relationship with him, what he demonstrates is he says this, do you know why I go around seeing what the Father does, and then I do it? He said, it's because the Father loves me. And because he loves me, he shows me. And then I like to please the Father, and so I do it. And so, because he loves me, he shows me, and then because I love him, I do what pleases him, and there is this interrelationship constantly of love and pleasure between us. That is at the heart of the universe. That is at the heart of the great person of all creation. That is at the heart of the divine being, is this interrelationship of love and pleasure. Everything else is a subset of that, a lower strata, including even giving life and giving judgment. It's important to recognize that. Partly because only by knowing that will we understand who the Christ really is, but also by knowing that, are we going to be able to understand the parallels between Jesus as the Son of God and the fulfillment of the great promise of John 1, where, what does it say? For those who believe in him, who believe in his name, he gives the right for them to become the children of God. So there is, and we're going to talk about this last, but since I'm running out of time, we'll poke this in a little bit now, is that Jesus is the unique Son. There are ways in which we will never be the Son like Jesus is the Son. And yet also mysteriously, in parallels that we don't all understand all the similarities and differences, we are also the sons and daughters. And there are things about this relationship that are very parallel. And the things that are amazing or astounding, like Jesus says, are that we participate in it. Okay, the second is, is that, oh, we already did that one. Sort of. Every, if you read the passage carefully, virtually everything in the passage demonstrates the mutuality of the Son and the Father. Right? It says, he loves me and shows me, and then I do. Right? There's this back and forth. He says, he says God's interest in make, showing that I am his son is so that people would honor me just like they honor him. To believe in me is to believe in the Father. That just, I, he, all, the, all the judgment is mine to judge, and yet I judge just like the Father wants me to judge. You see, there's this all, like, so like, does Jesus have certain jobs that are his? Yeah. Like, he's going to give life. He's going to give it to whom he pleases. But he has life in himself because the Father's life is in him, and his life is in the Father, and he has it in himself. And so there's this, like—and this is how you get doctrines like the Trinity. It's like, people are like, well, you know, there's just a doctrine of the Trinity isn't in the Bible. Like, okay, the word, the word Trinity is in the Bible, but like, how do you make sense of the, of the divine mutuality that Jesus is talking about here and the distinctness of persons? How do you—like, if you had to turn that into a philosophical statement, how would you do that, right? And it'd be like, well, I would recreate the doctrine of the Trinity. Like, yes, you would. That's what you would do. 
Now, the second thing we could say about this is, is that the father's, the father is showing life and judgment, and he's doing it for amazement because his purpose is to create faith, right? It culminates in that verse, in verse 24, right, where, where he's saying these things, and then he says, now remember, in the, in the Bible, when Jesus is speaking, right, sometimes to say, I'm telling you the truth, technically in the Greek, it's truly, truly, amen, amen, right? It is so, it is so. And then you speak. What you're saying is, what I'm going to say to you right now is particularly solemn. Like, this is, I want you to understand this. And he says that three times in this passage. And the central one, which is like the high point of these verses, is simply this. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. Do you see how he crosses condemnation and vindication, the legal categories of judgment, with life and death? The categories of like being alive and having flourishing and existing. Because in God's judgment, they're the exact same thing. Practically. He says he has crossed over from death to life. So that presumes that human beings outside of this life-giving work of God in his Christ, which happens that God is revealing, we start with death. It's important to realize that that's assumed everywhere in the Bible. We're in death. We need to receive the gift of life. And the reason Jesus is coming, he's revealing the Father and showing the Father is so that we can access that giving of life, right? Now, the reason why he—now, part of the issue here is, is that people are glad to receive miracles that connect to life, but they don't want to connect that with judgment. That is, moral evaluation. That's really important to them. Right? So I have not even asked Devin if he and I interpret this the same. But here's how I take the first half of this. Jesus comes up to this guy and he asks him, he says, listen, do you want to get well? And he's like, I don't know what, I don't even know what I'm doing. And Jesus is like, get up. And then he gets up, right? And he doesn't know who Jesus is. And Jesus finds him later, right? And he says, listen, stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you, okay? Now that doesn't fit with most, the way most people think about Jesus. But he said it, okay? John records it. It's important. Meaning this. Our first interaction, we clarified your receiving of life. In our second interaction, we clarified your relationship to judgment and that the two were connected. You see, you were paralyzed for 38 years. You were among the living dead for 38 years. Some people would say of all the different people who Jesus heals, especially at least in the Gospel of John, this guy's life was the worst life. Right? And he's like, listen— if your life doesn't change, if you don't stop doing evil and do good, your end is going to be worse than that. Do you see what he's saying there? That's really terrifying. Now, some commentators think that the main point there is, is that he, his behavior got him paralyzed in the first place, and he was doing that behavior again. And that's like a fun little point about syphilis. But that's, that's probably not the thematic teaching that John is trying to clarify. John is trying to help you show how this person may or may not come to salvation. And John is showing that in most cases, people will accept life, but not the realities of the moral implications of what faith actually means if you really believe it. And so there's no transformation. They don't reckon with the fact of who gave them life. And so then they don't actually access the full life of God. They don't actually come to salvation. And all through John, you see this with people, you're like, he does something for them, 
and they receive the gift, and they're really happy about it, and they want more. They want, they're like, more life, God. <coughs> and he's like, okay, walk with me. I'll love you, and I'll show you things, and then you walk with me in them. And we'll have this relationship of love and pleasure. And you'll see what the life of God is really like. And they're like, oh, that's not what I mean at all. Right? In fact, next week, Devin's going to preach about the feeding of the 5,000, which is the most literal version. It comes right after this passage, right? You see how they're sandwiched around each other? This passage in, in chapter 5, where he talks about who he is as the son and what testimony really is and what it means about God to speak to us and show it, is sandwiched between these two miracles where the people who receive the miracle, the life, do not receive the truth about who God is, and therefore they don't understand and they face judgment. And so you see, the first half of this passage is about the life-giving work of God. And the first part of that healing passage is Jesus healing the guy. And then in the second half, what does he say? He says, don't be amazed. So he says amazed again, right? So the first half he was like, I'm, God is going to raise the dead. He's going to show incredible miracles, and you're going to be amazed at that. You're, you're not going to be expecting all the amazing life-giving things God is going to do if you walk with him in that relationship of love and pleasure. He said, but here's what you should be amazed about that you are amazed about. This should not surprise you. What God is going to do miraculously, that's going to surprise you, especially when I rise from the dead. But this shouldn't surprise you. This should be so obvious. And he says this, don't be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all the graves will hear a voice, and they will come out, and those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but the one who sent me. So he's saying, he's like, he's like you, you should not be surprised if in one minute you say, the life-giving God is going to raise the dead. That's fantastic. He's like, you should not be surprised that that same life-giving God who's going to raise the dead is going to judge them. Because in the character of the God who is good, both must exist. And you can't have one without the other. And if you try to have one without the other, you can't actually believe in the God who is there. The one who's actually before you. You can't believe in the Son of God. You can't honor him. You can't believe in him. You can't hear his word. You can't do any of that stuff. You'll be utterly stuck in this sophomoric, immature view that like, I want God to give me stuff, but I am not interested in his character at all. And in not being interested in his character, you can't receive his love, you can't see what he's doing, you can't participate in it, and you can't experience the mutual pleasure of walking with God. And you cannot experience his supernatural life unto not experiencing it forever. You see, one of the things that we need to recognize is that as you work through John's gospel, he begins to lay this out clearer and clearer. The way we hear from God the way Jesus did is by believing in God's self-revelation, which is his son, Jesus. You have to believe in Jesus. Then you need to believe in what Jesus says and does. Right? And then in believing in that God, in chapter 15, he's going to talk about how we abide with him, how we like kind of stay with him with it. We stay connected with him even when he prunes us. Right? Because we know that there's growth that will come from it and fruit that will come from it. And so we stay like holding in with Jesus, seeking to like experience, understand his love, step out in it, and do what we know pleases him, and so be pleased ourselves. And in that, actually experiencing salvation in the life of God, so that the, the, the moment where God comes to us and he offers us life and we receive it, we, we connect it with what it means to actually stop sinning so something worse doesn't happen to us. 
it actually hits us in the heart in such a way as that we go, when I'm raised and Jesus judges me on the basis of what I've done, which is what that says, he will say that I have done good. Not in that I've been like perfectly righteous or anything like that, but in him, did I believe? Did I follow? Did I receive his life? Did I, in a meaningful sense, walk in the relationship of love and pleasure as he showed the life of God? Did I walk in the life of God so that I can have it forever? And the answer is yes. You see, in Scripture, God judging people according to what they've done and saving people on the basis of faith alone are compatible. Because when he talks about faith and really receiving God's life— he means it for real. And nobody gets up from laying around for 38 years in a half death and doesn't realize that something's going to change in their life now that this has happened to them. Not if they understand what's happened. Does that make sense? Jesus ends with this. Well, he doesn't end with this. I'll end with this. He says, if you do this, if you watch me walk with the Father, what will become manifest to you, what you will see, will amaze you. It will amaze—you will marvel. You will wonder at it. You will, you will be surprised that something like this could ever happen to anyone anywhere. And you will be placed in such a place where you'll perceive it and you'll experience it. And— that what he said about judgment just goes along with that. You shouldn't be amazed at that. And so, this is another version of the apostles speaking the word of Christ to you, saying, what do you believe? What do you believe? What do you believe God is like? What do you believe he's shown us and taught us? What do you, what do you believe it means to follow him, to believe in him, what do you think it means to receive his miraculous healing, his, to have his sight as someone spiritually reborn? What do you think it means to have the right to be reborn as the sons and daughters of God? Do you want to get well? And will you believe, hear the word of the Son of God and believe in the one who sent him? So that you can learn to have this relationship of walking with him in such a way as that he shows himself. You please him and are pleased in return. Let's pray. Lord God, thanks that, um, that we can know you in this way. Thank you that you have um, shown us yourself. Thank you that you have done um, many things to communicate yourself in places where we would naturally misunderstand you. We pray that as we, as we sing now, as we think, and as we take communion together, that, um, that you would work in us. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.